Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of the Integrity Insights podcast. Today, we're going to discuss about movies. Well, actually, we're going to discuss about a documentary that is um, dealing with a, a football uh, match-fixing scandal. And I'm happy to have here with us today Jeff Raymond, who is a former basketball player and a former union organizer. And he's also an expert in Erasmus Plus educational programs. And he's also an entrepreneur in the field of sport. And he has been involved in the shooting and creation of a documentary called Fixed Football Comedy. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, Silvia. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, as I mentioned, you have been involved in the making of a recent documentary, which is called Fixed Football Comedy. Can you explain to our listeners what is this documentary about and is it really a comedy? So, thanks for asking the question. In fact, the, the documentary is about a football match, an official football match between two national teams that happened in 2010. It was between the national team of Bahrain and the national team of So for the people who know match fixing really well, 2010 was kind of the year where everybody realized that it was potentially a big threat on sport in general and football in particular. And this, this match was used by many as an example of how easy it was to fix or potentially fix a football match. So the whole purpose of the movie is to demonstrate or at least try to demonstrate what happened during the match and if this match was fixed or not. Right. And can you tell us why you decided to produce such a documentary? Well, actually, it's, it's quite easy and, and it's kind of a long story because uh, when I started as a union organizer, like you mentioned in the introduction, I was uh, working for EUATLIT, which is the European uh, Federation of Player Association in Europe. And as part of my role of deputy general secretary and then general secretary, I had the chance and the privilege to be an observer in various expert groups of the European Commission on match fixing in particular. I attended many conferences organized by uh, sport federation or, you know, the European Commission or the sports forum or like many gathering around sports. And every time the subject of, of match fixing was presented, this match was used as an example of how sports betting and match fixing could have an effect on, on sports in general. And at the beginning, I was like everybody, pretty much. I was like, yeah, look at those guys. They don't look like football players. And I was using myself the, the, the example of that particular match in uh, education session that I had with players. But the more I used the content and the more I heard about the content, the more I realized that we were lacking a lot of information about that particular match. It was really difficult to find an article online that was talking about the match. It was really difficult to find basically any information about that particular match. Writers update that have been used by pretty much everyone. And, and that's it. And all of a sudden, the match who seems to be the most fixed match ever in sports history is nowhere to be found. I mean, no relevant information about any investigation conducted by both FIFA or CAF in Africa, and no investigation from Interpol, no police report, no nothing. So you just have people presuming that the game is fixed based on one thing, is that the match organizer is a well-known 
a match fixer was being arrested before in Finland for fixing numerous games in Europe. So I was a bit frustrated. And one day I, I woke up and I have to say, my wife is, is originally from Togo and the Togolese national team was involved. And I spoke to my mother-in-law and I said, well, can you help me find out if you know, like a journalist back in Togo can help us to do some research and trying to find a player because I will not allow, as a former athlete myself, anyone wearing a suit in Brussels to say that you are or you are not a football player or you are not an athlete because you just don't look like an athlete on a picture. Because that literally was the only thing available for people was to see a, a picture of the, the Togolese team preparing for the match. So like a traditional team picture taken before the match. And I was like, well, there is no way like people in Brussels, people in Switzerland can decide whether or not those guys are actual football players. So I spoke with a few friends about that match and we attended an, an Interpol seminar in Lyon as part of a, a Erasmus Plus funding project. And once again, we show up in Lyon and this game come up again and again with the same rhetoric. Look at those guys. They don't look like football players. And it goes on and on and on. And, and at the end of the, the two-day session with Interpol, the three of us talked uh, with each other and we're like, okay, let's do something because that's, I mean, there are people behind it. There are actual um, people living in Togo. There may be or maybe not be football players, but they're actual people. And you have to respect who they are and, and people need to know the truth. So, so we're like, okay, let's do it. So that's how everything started. Wow, thanks for sharing this. This is really interesting insights of the behind the scenes of this documentary. So you decided to create and start this project. So what was your role exactly? How you were involved in making of the documentary? So my role was gathering the good people, let's say, all together. So I, I contacted an investigative journalist and he said, well, I, are you interested in the subject? And he was actually really interested. And then I, I called a few friends and the guys from the Netherlands that I knew. And uh, yeah, we sat down together and we, we started the whole process. So my, my role at the beginning was really like coordinator in between the different parties that translated later on into producer. <laughs> my goal at the beginning was not to be a producer of the documentary. It was just trying to put this project together because I thought it was a great project. And the way it started was literally my mother gave me a contact detail of someone in Togo that I started to, you know, text and, and exchange back and forth. And then he got us in touch with some local journalists, like two of them, and a big shout out to them because they've been great. They've done the research on the ground, trying to reach out to the locals. And as soon as they got some contact there, we decided to fly out to uh, Togo and meet the players because we've been able to reach out to the, 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 the former coach of the national team. And we reach out to players as well. And then we travel to Togo and with a camera crew. And here we are, like four guys from like two, two Dutch guys, one Swiss guy and, and myself all the way down to Togo trying to make a, a documentary that we have you know, never done before, basically. So uh, we tried our best. And it was the beginning of a great, great story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the story is really interesting. Uh, and we will come back to where our listeners can watch the documentary later. But... Basically, your, your, this documentary was born because you had this idea and this need to shed light on what happened on that match and to let people know what, what happened and how it was fixed. 
and what were the circumstances that led to the fixing of, of that match. And it's absolutely amazing because I come back to what you were mentioning before, Jeff, on the fact that there was no information uh, or very little information about this case. And I do remember very well this case again when it, when it first was published. It was back in 2010, 11. There were some news about this. But it's true what you said, that then following up the developments of this case was a little bit difficult. Not always it was easy to, to get hold of the state of play of the investigation or, or what the authorities were doing on this case. And it's also the case with other instances of, of possible match fixing. Information is not always there. Why do you think sometimes it's so difficult to get all the, of the information on certain cases? Maybe because it's convenient for people, I would say. And even, even for us, it was really complicated to, to reach out to the people to get the information. It was, it was really complicated. So my guess is that is that sometimes it can be convenient for people not to know. And, and yeah, it, it raises a lot of questions when you start digging. So sometimes it was better for people not to know, I think, or not to look or not to do any research. And just uh, let the flow go and just forget about it. Our idea is, is really to present the perspective of the player because the one who are suffering the most from that situation, at the end of the day, they are the players. And as a player myself, former player myself, that's the only thing that pushed me along the way was just to present those guys and who they are and what the consequences are for them because there are consequences for them even today. And when you look at the documentary, you see that they were not ready to disclose their identity. We know that they actually played a match and, and they were on the game sheet. But at the end of the day, it has a huge repercussion for them. And that's what I was trying to figure out because everybody presents match fixing as an issue. That's true. But the, the guys who are suffering the most are the players because they are the one under the spotlight, they are the one being threatened. They are the one, you know, yeah, receiving death threats from people if they don't do what they were supposed to do. And and at the same time, and I think that's something Wilson Perimal explains quite well in the documentary, from the match fixer perspective, he also has to make sure that the, the guys who are going to fix the match, if they are fixing it, are, are receiving money just to make sure that they, they're going to deliver what they are supposed to do. And, and that's also a really interesting uh, situation from the match fixer perspective because he, he, he has in a way to make sure that the match is really going to be fixed and fixed in the way that suits him the, the most so so it's a connection it's a conjunction of things it's really like like i said it's a convenience for people not to know about the match it's also the impact of that particular match on, on actual players and then it's also for the match fixers to yeah to be able to deliver his fixing i would say yeah, I will just pick up one thing that you um, just mentioned, Jeff, and it's it's I, it's actually the same sensation that I had while I was watching the documentary is about who are the victims of the whole plot of the whole fixing of the case because you have a lot of different actors involved when a, a match is fixed, and you explain it quite well in the documentary. But it also across quite in a striking way, who are the victims of of the uh, of the fixing? And the players themselves are quite hurt. And 
you know, as you said, these are people that, first of all, I mean, they are people, they are human beings. And secondly, they have to deal with something that maybe they were not even aware of, of the bigger scheme that it was behind that match. Oh, yeah, that's, that's totally correct. And I can give you a, a, a perfect example for that. It's fascinating to see that those players from Togo, they have been granted a visa for the game. So they had a visa signed by the Bahrainese government to go and play that match. So they left Togo and they went to play the match in Bahrain. And, and with no problem. So it means that you have people behind the scene who are operating or pulling the strings because it's not that easy to get a visa to get to Bahrain. And I'm well placed to say that because I was not granted a visa myself to go to Bahrain for the FIFA Congress. So it raises question of the level of implication of people. And, and to me, like you said, yes, the players, they are the real victim because a lot of money was given away to both federations to organize the match by uh, Wilson Rush Perumal, because that's how he operates. He, he basically pays the federation a certain amount of money to, to put a team together and, and to pay their trips, pay their hotel and accommodation on any given country to play a match. So it doesn't cost anything to the federation. And sometimes federation, especially in, in Africa, they don't have enough money to travel the, their national teams in good condition. So the guy pays for players to have like decent condition. He brings his own referee. They play the match. The referee fix the match with, with the support of the match fixer. And then they get the result they want and they make the money at the end. So the real losers uh, are, the, are the players because uh, on, on the whole, they are not being paid uh, to play that match, or usually they are not being paid. The, the match fixer is paying the federation a certain amount of, of money to organize the, the match, but you don't know where the money is going. And is, the money is definitely not going to the player. And that's also a problem for the fixer itself, because if the player come on the pitch, didn't receive any money to play or, or anything, how can you be sure that they're going to deliver the performance he, he expects? And, and, and that's the whole point, because the Usually when, when you are trying to uh, fix a match, you're doing it with like two or three guys from the same team, or at least maybe the goalkeeper is enough or having the referee is enough. But the problem is that the, the Togolese players, they came in such a bad shape that mm. he, he causes problem to the match fixer himself because he was expecting a result even without fixing the match too much that they would lose anyway. But the context of the Togolese Federation at that particular time was really messy. They, they didn't have a full competition, like a local competition for, for more than a year. So the players, they were not in shape. They were not playing, practicing or whatever. And, and, and they came up unprepared, un, in, not in shape and unprepared. And that led to a situation where the match fixer was not sure that if he would make any money at the end because he, he didn't want the Baranese team to blow uh, the Togolese team by too many goals. And, uh, and that's almost what happened. So he, he managed somehow, and that's what he explains in the documentary, and, that, and I'm not going to disclose information so the people can, can enjoy it. But it's quite important for him because at the end of the day, he wants to make his money as well. And, and at some point during the match, he's not sure. And, and it becomes to frustrate everybody, apparently. Yeah. Well, actually, I would like to focus for one second on the person of Wilson Puramal, who's the, who's the fixer behind this match that you guys are describing in the documentary. I think the documentary um, makes a, a, a big contribution 
to the overall community that is involved in the fight against match fixing and in all the discussions around integrity in sport. Because for the first time, you have the perspective of a criminal, as you say, disclosing certain information publicly on how he fixed the match, listening directly from someone who fixed the match was indeed very shocking. And I think this is also why this documentary is so important. Because for the first time, you get the perspective of the fixer. And this guy was making quite some shocking statements under my personal opinion. And, and you can also see him basically prizing himself for fixing the matches. So what was the most shocking thing for you when you were filming the document? It's not an easy question because, like you mentioned, we are the first one ever to, to have uh, Wilson Rashperamal on camera. He was not really keen to give interviews and it was a long process of having him on camera and, and going to Budapest and filming and spending like two days with him. And, and like you said, he, he's giving some shocking comments about what it means to him to, to fix matches, basically. So, but, but to me, what, what surprised me the most was the reaction of both coaches of the Baroness team. So just to go back to in history a little bit. So we go to Togo, we meet with Bana Chanile, which is the coach of the Togo national team. We spent a full day with him, went great. And he put us in touch with some guys from the national teams who played the match. So we had a chance to interview the guys. And so we come back to Europe and we have a lot of content already that nobody has ever seen and heard about. And then we reach out to the coaches from the Baranese team at the time. And they were guys from Austria. So we travel to Austria and we meet those coaches and we sit down with them. Usually when you play sports, you remember all the games that you've played, especially when you're a coach because you're, you're, that's the way you are programmed. The guys, they recall the match, but they couldn't tell that it was fixed. And for one of them, the main coach of the national team, it was a, the first time that it was listening to the name Richard Rash Perman. And you can see his, his, his uh, surprise in the documentary because it was, yeah, for him, the match was strange, but it was not nothing that he had, he had played strange matches before. And that was really kind of shocking moment to me that people who were actually in that particular match didn't see that as an issue. We said, well, of course, they were not in shape and they were looking a bit strange. But I was really surprised when you uh, came to me in the first place with, uh, with the saying that the match was fixed and you wanted to do a documentary about it. And, and, and that's what stunned me in the first place. But then, of course, what Wilson Rashperma is saying is also obviously really, really important uh, the way he approaches people. He has done that on numerous occasions. He's a well-known match fixer. I wrote a book, a book about how he fixed match during the, the football tournament in the Olympics and how he was traveling around the world with uh, bags full of cash to bribe uh, coaches, referees, team officials. But uh, yeah, that's the first time he literally sits and then explains exactly what he did and how he did it. And that's, I think that's quite fantastic to me because that's, it's unseen and uh, unheard of. I think he, he has the capacity to convince people to trust him with his, his scams. And the whole footage of the, of the Paramount interview is just fascinating. When you have attended seminars and you're involved in the discussion around match fixing and the impact on sport, it's, it's fascinating to hear about the things he says. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also the psychology of the character, that's what also caught my attention a lot, because for him, he was not doing anything wrong. For him, it was just like business as usual. 
and also at a certain moment he even says I have a family and I need to provide food and money for for my family so for him it was like a normal job so it was really fascinating to see also the psychology behind his character yeah yeah exactly and he has done bigger scam than this one he tried to buy a, a football club in Finland second division and, and bring player would fix matches for him and yeah, he has done that. I mean, he has tried, I think, everything he could in order to fix matches. All the strategy and all the things you could do or you can imagine to try to fix a match, even things that you don't, cutting the light of the stadium at halftime and stuff like this. Uh, I mean, this guy was a serial fixer. And how is that possible that he got caught only in 2011, I think it was? And after all the matches that he has fixed, how is it possible that a guy uh, like him could go and, and fix so many matches without being under surveillance or something? Because he was already convicted in 1995. Yeah, I think, I think that's a question for the, the sport governing body and the police to answer to. But uh, the, the complexity of in my opinion, that uh, the complexity of, of catching a guy like that is that he's fixing match around the world. So it, it doesn't become a local event that you can put your local police on. It becomes an international scam. And coordinating police, I mean, you know the level of interest for police around the world on match fixing is really different from one to the other. Let's start with that. So when you are in Bolivia, you know, you know how much time they want to spend on match fixing. I don't know. Uh, that's a question for the Bolivian police to answer. Same thing when you are in Togo. Are they going to put an investigative policeman or like full time on, on trying to figure out what happened? No, I'm not sure. So the, and, and that's also the point of Perumal. He was going in like really weird places and weird countries where he knew um, that it's going to be easy to fix a match because the, first of all, the federation is not strong enough to do any investigation. The local police, they have other stuff to deal with. And then he goes from one country to the other and he's not going to get caught unless something like that happens. And then he starts triggering people's interest and it, it puts him under the spotlight. But because if, in my opinion, if this match was fixed in a proper way, he would have never been caught or fixed in a proper way or the result was no, not problematic. Or if he hadn't picked uh, the same day for the match that the day where the national team was not practicing to prepare for another match. It was just like small mistakes, one after another, that led to that situation. The international landscape allows people like him to try to fix as much as they can, but they can't sporting event. That's, that's my feeling. Yeah, so what do you think can be done to prevent people like him to travel the world, arrange fixed matches, feed the Chinese... Uh, mafia, because I mean, in the documentary, it's, it's explained quite well his interaction with the Chinese mafia and how they were exploiting betting to feed the Chinese mafia. So what can be done? And do you think there is a before and after landscape after the Bahrain-Togo match? I don't think there is a before and after. I think it's still an ongoing situation. I mean, during the pandemic, I, I read articles that in Ukraine, they organized ghost matches. Not, they are not even fixed. They, they are ghosts. Uh, so they are not even played with players. So that's really scary in a way. So to me, the landscape hasn't changed much. There are still a lot of work to be done. The, the second thing is there, need, there is a need for more cooperation between uh, police in different countries. So... I think if everybody has to play a role, I think the player themselves, they have to play a role by 
reporting the approaches that they can be uh, subject of and, and these type of things. I mean, uh, it's one piece after another that will have an impact on the overall uh, state of, of match fixing. But I think unless you fix your governance at the federation level, which is by international or national, uh, where you improve the, the conditions of the player and the police can coordinate in between countries. Uh, so it's a complex issue. It has different angles and different approaches. But I think it's, my opinion, the responsibility of everybody to do something. And I hope that's one of my goals as well with the documentary. I hope this will help them to realize that it's it's not a one-zero game. Everybody needs to take responsibility. In my opinion, it's important for everybody to recognize that they have a role to play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here I can only agree with you. It's a, such a complex phenomenon and each case might differ from, from each other. So everybody has a key role to play here and it's a common fight at the end of the day. It's a common goal to try to avoid fixed matches, but criminals are always out there and we can see it in the person of, of Perumal that you know, they're always trying to find ways and possibilities and loopholes to take advantage and defraud sports, defraud fans, defraud regulated sports betting operators, defraud the whole system, essentially. So here we are dealing with serious criminals and serious organized crimes. I mean, now Perumal is under special surveillance because yeah. of the Chinese mafia. Might get him, right? Yes. Yeah, he's stuck at home with an electronic bracelet. That's the situation for him. But, but he put himself in this situation. He, he knew, he recognized that he fixed matches and he, he, he got sentenced uh, for years in prison for that. Now they have adapted the uh, the sentence so he can stay home. But uh, maybe that's also the sentencing for match fixer is, uh, is not sufficient, but that's uh, part of the of the states also to do their part of the work because if the the, the potential sanction were bigger maybe it would uh, deter the match fixing from fixing matches so that's that's also something but now with the, even if you're in a prison but with a with a phone and an internet connection you can call your local contact and organize the fixed matches as well so so you see that's uh, that's also something that you have to take into account so the landscape is, is changing we are not back in the 90s with the the Yankees or the Red Sox trying to fix a match with the local match fixer. I mean, the scope is much uh, larger now. So everybody has to pay attention to that and everybody has a role to play. Yeah, and hence, again, it's the importance of sharing information with the uh, right people, cooperating in, at the right time, and most importantly, have the willing to do something and take, as you said, your the responsibility to try to prevent or deter or uh, pursue match fixers. Yeah, exactly. But if you look at it from the player perspective, I think it's fair to say that if you're a Togolese player playing the local championship in Togo and you haven't been playing for a full year, you're not making any money because you, you have to work as a cab driver or, or yeah, the, the, when the football is not happening in your country and someone comes to you and offers you 500 euros or $500 to play a football match in Bahrain and, and play for the national team, what are you going to say? You're going to say yes. Of course you're going to say yes, because you have a family to sustain. You have uh, people that you need to help. Maybe your mother who needs surgery and you can afford it. And every situation is specific, in my opinion, and they have to be taken into account. And you know, when the player accepted some, some money to play that match, even if they were trying their best, you know, they, 
they, they are human beings after all, and they have to make a living. And when your day-to-day -day job is not offering you anything, then what you got left? Uh, and it's hard to find something else to do when you're a football player. Your goal is always to play football. So, so that's that's not easy, and uh, and that's why you need the people to think about it carefully and and think about the consequences of any like regulation sanctions uh, they could pass on. So that's my hope that every stakeholder who is responsible for doing at least one thing mm -hmm. will do it at some point. And, uh, and I think it will help solve the problem. It's, it's not going to be easy. It might take a lot of time, but everybody has a role to play. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yourself, you have been working on a number of uh, projects on the prevention of match fixing in the past. While you were doing the documentary, what have you learned about match fixing that you didn't know before? I've learned that it's really hard for players to report. And you have to give them an environment that allows them to report when you are approached by a match fixer or someone asking you to play at 75% of your capacity. Because if you don't have a safe environment or if you don't know the people where to report, who to report and what to report, then you're on your own. So becoming a whistleblower is not something easy. And that's what I recognized when I was filming the, the documentary because those guys, 10 years later, they still want to hide. They don't want to be recognized or they don't want to be seen or they don't want to be associated because with the match because they know it can have consequences for them. So that's what struck me the most. It is hard for those people to talk. And yeah, that's an issue. So the comes with the governance of federation and they have to help the players and offer them a safe environment where they can report anything suspicious if they see something suspicious and seeing it doesn't mean that they're going to do it but that's what i learned and meeting those guys who have been involved in a match like this one it was a great opportunity because i i had the privilege of talking to a lot of players and, and doing prevention courses with them but i i really had a few of them approached by match fixer or participating in, in fit events and having the time to sit out with those guys have a long explanation and understand what was the The rhetoric behind it, it's, I think it's, it, it, personally, to me, it was just a great experience. It was, I've learned so much. It was just the personal knowledge. It was just fascinating. When I met those guys, I learned right away that the story was much different than how it was presented. And were they aware that the match was fixed or they were just told the story that, you know, we're going to represent the Togo national team to play a match against Bahrain? No, no, no. They had absolutely no idea that the match would be fixed. And technically, the match is not fixed uh, by the players. It's fixed by the referees. And, and you can see that clearly on the on the video because there is a footage of the match. Uh, you can find it's uh, it's just the goals, but you can see sometimes on, on certain goals the 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 main referee is is going against the linesman who is calling an offside, for example. So the linesman uh, is calling offside, but the referee says no goal goal. Uh, The goal can go on, and it's a, it's a valid goal. And and the player, what they can do against that? And there is no VAR at the time. There is no nothing, no review. So they are like, okay, so the goal is on, and then that's it. So let's let's continue the match. So for them, it was really like, hey, do you want to play for the national team? Yes, why not? I'm a football player, and I would love to play for my country. Uh, we have a game to play against Bahrain. It's a friendly match. What can you say? And you haven't been playing football for a year or more than a year. Yes, of course you're going to say yes. Because it's a way for you to get exposure and maybe to find a contract somewhere else. So, yeah, that's a great opportunity. 
Yeah, this documentary, it's a really eye-opener of what it means to be a football player, but also what it means to be a football player in certain countries. Because, I mean, here we're talking about Togo with certain social and economical characteristics that are similar to other African countries. And I guess the challenges that the players are facing there are much different from challenges that football players are facing in, uh, in developed countries. Yep, exactly. And that's the main point. We have so many information that we could disclose, but we had to find a line and we had to leave some stuff behind. And unfortunately, but I think we have a good project, but it's, it's still frustrating. That's what I learned because I'm not a documentary expert. It was the first time I was working on something like that, on a project like this one. And I think it was, it was a high opener for me that, yes, sometimes you have to make our choices that you're going to leave some stuff behind. So maybe that's going to be for a second edition. We had the privilege of interviewing the president of CAF. And unfortunately for him, we had to cut him off in the final version. So it does not even appear on the documentary. So that, yeah, it shows on various different angles the impact on people and what people can realize and what people don't realize. And the, the people pulling the string behind it also. And I think that's, that's what makes the documentary great is that you can have a general overview of the situation and you understand it better. Yeah, absolutely. So will you work in making similar documentaries in the future? You mentioned the possibility to have a sequel of this uh, documentary. Is it already in the pipeline? Can you give us a, a preview? Well, actually, we won a couple of awards in different festivals over the last year because we started our, our journey back in, in September uh, 2020. And the most recent one was the A. IPS award for the best investigative journalist uh, that we received for the journalist to work with us. And with that, there, I think there is a strong wish for, for us to do something to push further the investigation because we have the content. And like I was saying, we didn't use all the content. So maybe it will not be uh, a documentary again. It will not be a number two, uh, but it, it may be, it will be a, a web doc kind of a web doc or a web something where you, the, the, the viewer will be able to get more information or more in-depth information about certain topics. So that, that's something that we are considering right now. And we are looking at all the options to have a more online document that will be more accessible for the, for the general audience. Right. Well, keep us posted on your future projects. We are all very interested in that. And just to wrap up our conversation, Jeff, where can our listener watch the documentary Fixed Football Comedy? It's the title. Yes. So it's, uh, it's available on every uh, streaming platform. I will not name them here, but uh, you're easy to find, uh, except one. The most important ones are, are streaming the movie. So you can, you can order it, you can buy it, you can uh, rent it, and just uh, type the name in in, your, uh, in the search uh, the search box and uh, you'll, you'll have it. You'll have a chance to see it. Perfect. So I invite all our um, listeners to watch this documentary because it's really, really worth it. Well, Jeff, thank you a lot for your time. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. And is there just one last message that you would like to leave to our audience about your experience with this documentary? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation. It's always great. I mean, it's a really personal project. I have no background in filmmaking and I've learned so much doing that. I think it's just great for me personally that we've been able to accomplish that. And I'll keep that for the rest of my life. So thank you for the invitation and allowing me to, to speak about that. But uh, yeah, for the, for the audience, 
I'm not involved as much as I was uh, in the fight against match fixing anymore. I'm, I, I still keep a, a close look on what's going on because I'm, uh, it's an area of interest for me. But I, I would say, I mean, it, 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 there is a after 10 years or more than 10 years when uh, where everybody's talking about it, I think it's uh, I think it's important for everybody to sit around the table and accept who they are and what they do and how they can manage at their level to change things or do things better in order to protect the players. And uh, the, it can be the player themselves, it has to be the stakeholders, it has to be the, the, regu- the local regulators, it has to be the government, it has to be also the, the, the betting operators, whether they are private or, or public. And everybody has an interest to sit around the table and protect sports altogether, like I was saying before, where a match with no spectators, no, not even players are being are being played. And when I see uh, ghost matches, I have to say I'm I'm really scared of what the future will look like. As a former player myself, as a, a trade unionist, as a union organizer, as a person involved in protection of, of sports from match fixing, it's scary. The crooks they will use every opportunity, like you said, to try to find a way to make money at the end because that's what it is about so everybody has an interest to protect their their own business they, they might not be the same but the, the goal should be there and it should be aligned in between the different stakeholders and that's something i've been fighting for for a long time and in, in 2021 i surely believe that this is the way to go and this is the only way to go it's to go in a good direction altogether otherwise it will not work absolutely we can only share your view on this Well, thanks a lot again, Jeff. Bye-bye. Thank you.